You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 37. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. This is the podcast where I share my fiction with you and keep you updated on my life and my writing. Before we get into this week's story, it's time for another job hunt update. Yeah, I did a job. I got nothing but trouble since I did it, not to mention more than a few unkind words as regard to my character, so let me make this abundantly clear. I do the job. And then I get paid. This week I had my second phone interview with a research organization in Madison, Wisconsin. This was a conversation with the lab managers in their microbiology group, where we discussed my qualifications and job experience and talked a bit about the work that they do there. The call went very well, and on Friday, their recruiter informed me that they're going to bring me out to Madison for an on-site interview. I'm super excited about this. They're going to let me know my travel arrangements soon, so hopefully I'll have more news for you in next week's episode. Huge thanks go out to everyone who's been making pledges to the Patreon campaign. We're now up to over $600 in pledges for this month. That means we met our third milestone goal, and you guys are going to be receiving a color illustration of one of our stories next month, courtesy of Randall Fulton. I know that some of you have increased your pledge levels dramatically to help us in our time of need, and I'm extremely grateful to all of you for that support. If you haven't yet made a pledge to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. Even a few dollars a month can really add up. And as a thank you for donating, you can get extra bonus stories, bonus artwork, story previews, and other cool stuff. Again, that's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 7 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This was another one of those chapters that didn't have a good halfway point, so I'm bringing you the whole chapter instead of splitting it in two. The following recap will contain spoilers, so if you haven't caught up through episode 36, pause here until you're up to date. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have been searching for the missing heiress, Lady Mysteria Halloway. Her father, Count Xavier Halloway, is the Minister of Imperial Intelligence, and when his political rivals blocked him from using his own spies to locate his missing daughter, he named Kate and David as temporary officers of the Ministry in order to do his work for him. So far, Kate and David have uncovered a set of tantalizing clues— Misty was involved in some kind of adventure with a group of her fellow noble scions, a dangerous journey into the Tilvari Rift Zone, where an arcane weapon of mass destruction once obliterated an entire country, and a strange enchanted rainforest has grown up from its ashes. The Rift Zone has become a biological gold mine for pharmaceutical research, and Malcolm Ardvalos, the head of the vampire crime syndicate in Metamore City, has been publicly campaigning for the rift to be opened for competition and development. Baron Kapler, who currently controls the rift zone, professed ignorance of the whereabouts of Misty and the other young nobles, including his own son, Ezekiel Kapler. However, one of Kapler's employees just turned up dead on the street of Metamore City, 
burned from the inside out by some unspeakably powerful magical force. The man had been a shuttle pilot for Kepler at the Rift Zone, but he was fired under mysterious circumstances, possibly related to the noble's disappearance. In all of their investigations into where she had been, however, Kate and David had no idea where Misty Halloway was now. All of that changed, however, when Kate received an encrypted message at her own apartment. Come to the Hedonist Temple at 4-9275 North Teffen Street. Go to the priest's entrance in the back and knock four times. The priest on duty will bring you to me. Come alone. Your safe passage is guaranteed. Lady Mysteria Halloway Things Unseen A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Laster Chapter 7 The arcane message persisted for about a minute, the fiery red letters glowing on the slip of paper. Then they faded from view, leaving no trace that they had ever been there. Kate sat back on her stool, staring at the paper with a mixture of curiosity, unease, and excitement. Misty Halloway, missing for weeks now, had chosen to make contact with her. Not with her father, Count Halloway, but with Kate. Why? Assuming that the message wasn't a fraud. But there's a way to check that, Kate realized. She went to her coat closet and pulled out the toolbox where she kept her crime scene analysis kit. She brought it and the Nocturnus Lily into her lab, cleared off the remains of the name encryption spell, and laid out the tools of her trade. Dusting powder, soft bristle brush, and fingerprint lifting tape. She dusted the flower pot and the encrypted slip of paper for prints. There were a lot of them. The pot had no doubt been handled extensively, and most of them were smudged and unreadable. On one side of the pot, however, a set of very clear fingerprints had been left in a neat line, four fingertips and a thumb all at about the same height. It couldn't be anything but a deliberate message. No one would have left that pattern of prints simply by handling the pot. Another deliberate-looking print rested squarely in the middle of the slip of paper. Kate lifted the prints with the tape and stuck them to a sheet of paper. Then she pulled out the file Count Halloway had given her on his daughter. Like most members of the nobility, Misty had been printed for just this reason, to assist law enforcement in finding her, if she ever went missing. She paged through the report until she found Misty's fingerprint records— then held them up alongside the set from the flower pot. She got a magnifying glass and examined them more carefully, to be sure. There was no doubt about it. The prints were a match. Kate put away the file and cleaned up her crime scene kit, feeling her pulse quicken with a growing excitement. Misty was alive and in the city, hiding from her own father. And yet she had contacted Kate, who had been press-ganged into working for that self-same father in order to find her. That suggested two things, that she had something to hide, and that she feared the consequences of remaining hidden. What consequences those might be, Kate couldn't be sure, but the burned and desiccated body of Bernard Travers floated before her in her all-too-vivid memory. Something had happened, and Misty was scared. Scared enough that she would trust a cop she didn't know over her own father. What happened to you out there, Misty? 
There were no obvious answers, and Kate wasn't going to get any closer to finding them until she heard what Misty had to say. But first, she had another problem to deal with. The voice of her caller came back to her. You're being watched. Your new master doesn't entirely trust you. That sent a chill down Kate's spine. The Imperial Ministry of Intelligence wasn't an organization you wanted keeping an eye on you. She should have expected it. There was no way that the kind of authority Halloway had given her and David would come without strings attached. But it still made her feel uneasy, and a little violated. You're being watched. Okay. First question. How? A few likely possibilities immediately presented themselves. The badge Count Halloway had given her was almost certainly being tracked. That was divination of the most basic kind, and Halloway would have to be an idiot not to have a tracking spell on it. That would let him know where she was, but not what she was doing. He'd need an active scrying enchantment for that, a so-called wizard eye. The Serenity Arms complex was screened against that kind of magic, and the groundskeepers swept the building regularly for electronic bugs and phone taps. Ms. Fallon considered any such form of surveillance to be a gross violation of privacy. That meant they wouldn't be able to see or hear what she was doing in her own apartment. That was probably why Misty had arranged to contact her here, rather than at the precinct house. It was safe to assume that, for the moment, no one knew that Kate had been tipped off to the surveillance. All right, so the imps can't see me in here. What else would they do? Kate's mobile phone might well be tapped. That was illegal without a warrant, but as Kate herself had demonstrated, getting a wiretap warrant was laughably easy for Imperial Intelligence. They might even be tracking it by its GPS signal, as a backup to the tracking spell on the badge. Lastly, she might have a tail, a flesh-and-blood person tasked with keeping an eye on her. With his political rivals breathing down his neck, Count Halloway might not have the resources for that. After all, he'd been forced to deputize Kate and David instead of putting his own agents on the case. The more she thought about it, in fact, the more the idea of an Imperial agent keeping tabs on her 24-7 just seemed ludicrous. On the other hand, if Kate went silent and shook off their tracking, they'd know that she found something, and it wouldn't be long before she was being followed. An officer of the Ministry, even a temporary one, was accountable to his supervision, and he'd be well within his rights to send someone after her if it looked like she'd gone rogue. She needed a way to get out from under her handlers in the ministry for a few hours, and to do it without letting them know that she'd tumbled to the tail. She pulled out her mobile phone and sent a brief and intentionally cryptic text message to a number in her contact list. Then she went to her closet and put on her racing leathers, a black compression suit with vivid white and orange markings and titanium shielding at the shoulders, knees, and elbows. By the time she was suited up, her phone had received an equally cryptic reply. She nodded once in satisfaction and dialed another number. A gruff male voice answered on the second ring, heavy metal music blaring in the background. Yo, the man said. The moondog hunts at night, Kate said, with the precise diction born of ritual. But the direwolf hunts when he pleases, the man replied, with equal formality. What can I do for you? Where's the race tonight? Ballantine Tower, the man said. Meet at the south parking garage. Ten marks to watch, a hundred to ride. Ten K course, street legal mods only, best time wins the pot. How's the heat? All clear, the man said, confidently. Course is in a sealed construction zone, and the foreman's given his boys the night off. No blues tonight. 
Sweet, Kate said, grinning. Put me down to ride. Call sign? Kill Mama Kill. There was a brief pause as the man took down the call sign. You're in, he said. Pay the purser when you come in and you'll get your tags. Race starts at ten sharp, so be there by nine so we can check out your ride. Kate glanced at the clock. She still had the better part of an hour. Got it. See you then. Good luck. The man rang off. Kate sent a follow-up message to the previous number, pocketed the phone, and went to finish getting ready. She left the Imperial Intelligence badge in her bomber jacket, along with her police badge. Neither one would be any help where she was going. She left behind her bulky sidearm as well, but the holdout pistol went into a hidden holster between her shoulder blades, behind a foam wedge that was designed to make the racer more aerodynamic. Her Arthana she hid in a boot sheath, and a few slender reagent packs fit in pockets along the insides of her sleeves. She checked herself in the mirror from all angles, but none of her special gear was visible. Taking a step closer to the mirror, she called up her mana reserves and cast a long-practiced glamour over herself. The changes were modest. Black hair instead of auburn, brown eyes in place of her usual green, pale pink skin smattered with freckles, instead of her unusual golden tan complexion. A few subtle changes to her mouth, nose, and eyebrows further distanced her from her daytime persona. Dark eyeshadow and mascara made her eyes stand out against the pale face, giving her a hard, hungry look. Lastly, a jagged, hook-shaped scar traced across her mouth and chin, as if someone had gone after her with a knife. Satisfied, she put on her helmet and went down to the parking garage, where her swoop waited for her. The slim black and orange craft looked like it was crouching in anticipation as she approached, as if it knew what the night held for them both. Kate swung herself into the saddle, powered up, and flew out into the chaos of Metamore City traffic, heading southwest toward Ballantine Tower. Swoop racing was one of the less destructive pastimes available on the street, though admittedly that wasn't saying much. At least one night in three there was a competition going on somewhere in the city's underbelly. Anywhere from five to fifty swoop jockeys battling it out for cash prizes, and occasionally more exotic fare as well. The races moved around from one spot to another, and the organizers kept a fairly tight lid on the locations, to keep out the posers and troublemakers. And to keep out the cops, of course. Swoop racing wasn't technically illegal, though the racers might break dozens of traffic regulations in a typical race, but a lot of illegal and quasi-legal activities went down around them, including drug deals, sideline betting, and contract negotiations between runners and mercenaries and their clients. And that didn't even include the shady dealings among the racers themselves. Rigging matches, sabotaging rival swoopies, even the occasional vehicular homicide. Swoop racers were well-armored, but accidents and accidents, could always happen. Kate had been competing on the racing circuit since her days in narcotics. On the face of it, it was just smart detective work. She could make contacts in the fringe sector, build trust, and pick up the latest gossip, without being forced to engage in any felonious actions herself. In exchange for turning a blind eye to the gray market dealings around the races, Kate had developed a network that helped her solve dozens of crimes in her service with narcotics, homicide, and now magic affairs. That was why MCPD continued to sanction her operations, and why they let her keep the prize money she won, nearly all of which went back into fixing her swoop and replacing worn-out equipment. But that wasn't why Kate did it. 
Oh, certainly the value to her police work was a nice bonus, but that wasn't why she risked life and limb on the tracks every week. It was all about the rush, the thrill of doing something reckless and dangerous and coming out the other side in one piece. On the job, Kate had to be in control of herself. She had to be disciplined. She had to be smart, aware of her partner, and aware of the innocence around her. On the track, she could cut loose and spit in the eye of Revenos himself. So far, she'd always made it through alive and more or less unharmed, and the near misses made the rush that much more intoxicating. She'd also made a friend, a kindred spirit who understood her passion for living life on the edge. The friend in question was waiting for her when she pulled into the garage of Ballantine Tower. Kitty Cat! Callie Linder was practically bouncing as she came up to meet Kate, dressed in hot pink racing leathers with white and silver accents. She had a matching pink helmet under one arm, two bottles in her free hand, and a lopsided grin on her elfin face. Kate parked her swoop, pulled off her helmet, and grinned back at her. Calendar girl! She swung off the saddle and caught Callie in a fierce hug. How you doing? You know me, Callie said. Every day above ground is a good day. They parted, and Callie offered Kate one of the bottles. I hear that. Kate took the bottle and clinked it against Callie's, and they drank together. It was only soda, but that was just as well. Kate would need all her reflexes for the race, particularly for what she had in mind. How's business? Keepin' busy, Callie said. Been doing a lot of courier work lately. Not that exciting, but nobody's shooting at me most of the time. She took a swig from her cola. How about you? Any hot cases? As far as Callie knew... Kate was Kathleen Kittredge, a private investigator specializing in cases that required a knowledge of wizardry. It was part of the persona that MCPD had crafted for her when she worked for narcotics section. She even had a business license, a Worldnet site, and a listing in the phone book. It gave her an excuse to look up her contacts in the racing world from time to time and ask them impertinent questions. Working on one right now, Kate said. Skywalker client, very hush. Gotta meet with an informant tonight. I'm just here to get docked first. Callie smirked, recognizing Kate's expression for losing a tail. I think we can handle that. B&S? Cert, Kate said. You keep whatever we win. Deal. Callie clinked her bottle against Kate's again. Let's get you prepped. Callie gave Kate's swoop a thorough look over, making a few tweaks and adjustments, while Kate checked in with the purser and paid her entrance fee. The race crew's inspectors came over and checked the craft for illegal mods and enchantments. When they had verified that the swoop was street legal, one of them slapped a bright silver sticker between the taillights. He wrote the day's date and an entry number on the sticker in permanent marker. One of the men waved to Callie. You racing today? Nah, got a blaze, she said. Client just called with a hot run. The man nodded. Too bad. I've had good luck betting on you. Callie grinned and winked. I'll bet you say that to all the girls. Only the cute ones. The crewman waggled his eyebrows appreciatively, then moved on to the next racer. Callie gave Kate another hug, leaning close to her. Track goes through Halvard Tower, she murmured. After the turn, go over the second barricade on the right. I'll be waiting for you. Got it, Kate said. At the appointed time, Kate took her place with the other racers at the starting line. There were 23 contestants in tonight's race, most of whom Kate recognized from previous competitions. 
She grimaced when she saw the third racer in line, a tall, muscular theriomorph with the head of a bull. He wore black street leathers, and his black swoop had a white ram skull painted on the nose. As if sensing her eyes on him, even through her helmet, he turned and looked at her, his nostrils flaring. Kate looked away and began fiddling with the controls on her swoop, but the bull man was already dismounted and heading toward her. One of the race techs came up to tell him to return to his craft, but the big swoopy put out an arm and pushed the man out of his way with no apparent effort. He stood over Kate and glowered down at her. You, he said. Kate looked steadily up at him, letting the tinted visor of the helmet hide any trace of her expression. Don't think I forgot what you'd done in our last race, the swoopy growled. You're gonna pay for that. Okay, now that's just stupid. Sighing, Kate popped the visor of her helmet. Osric, that was not my fault. If you'd been paying more attention to the track instead of riding a meter off my ass, you never would have crashed. Osric's eyes bulged. You led me into that ledge on purpose. I was taking a shortcut. It's your own damn fault if you can't remember how much clearance you need for your stupid horns. The other racers around them were watching now. Some of them laughed at Kate's words, and that enraged the bull man even further. Osric snorted, actually snorted, like a cartoon bull. If he'd started pawing the ground then and there, Kate would only have been a little surprised. He leaned in even closer, putting his nose right down in front of Kate's face and looking her in the eyes. Nobody, he snarled, talk shit about my horns. Kate narrowed her eyes, returning his glare measure for measure. Yeah, I can see why you'd be sensitive about that. The way I hear it, they're the only long, hard things you got worth mentioning. Jeers and catcalls sounded from some of the other swoopies. Osric spun this way and that, trying to see who was mocking him, and everyone but Kate took a step back. A froth of spittle appeared at the corner of his broad, heavy-lipped mouth. Matter of fact, the girls have a nickname for you, Osric. Kate said, grinning savagely. They call you Ox. The average street rat might not know the crucial distinction between an ox and a bull, but Osric certainly did. Bellowing in absolute fury, he lunged at Kate, his hands grasping for her throat. She dodged off the far side of the swoop, rolled over her shoulder, and came up facing him in a crouch. The adrenaline made her heart pound in her chest and filled her with a narcotic mixture of fear and excitement. She pulled the Arthana from her boot with her right hand. In her left, she held the little plastic tube of cuttlefish ink that she had drawn from a hidden pocket while Osric's back was turned. She sliced open the tube, coating the blade with the ink, then pointed the tip at Osric's head. Fulino! Heavy black shadows boiled up like smoke around Osric, obscuring his head completely. The man panicked and stumbled backward, falling over the swoop next to Kate's. The cloud of conjured shadow stayed with him, clinging stubbornly to his head. He thrashed and bellowed like a frightened animal, smashing equipment and knocking over those who were foolish enough to get in his way. He swung his head sideways and buried one of his horns in the fiberglass body of a swoop. This made him thrash even more wildly as he fought to free himself on pure instinct. The horn must have lodged itself in the metal frame because he was stuck fast and unable to pull himself loose. He let out a loud, piteous moan, sounding more like a beast than ever. Two of the bouncers came running then, armed with shock sticks and a set of heavy manacles. 
They prodded Osric with the stunners until he stopped moving, then bound his hands behind his back with the manacles. It took considerably longer to pry his horn loose from the other racer's swoop. The race manager did his best to calm the unfortunate swoopy, Tanner, that was his name, who was enraged at what the bullman had done to his ride. Osric was dragged off, and the purser gave both men's entry fees to Tanner. It would cost far more than that to repair the damage to the craft, of course, and Tanner loudly proclaimed that he would collect the money from Osric even if he had to take it out of his hide. Kate would have found that hilarious under other circumstances, given the man's name, but right now she just hung back in the corner and tried not to draw attention to herself. At last, Osric and Tanner's swoops were pulled off the line, and the race was ready to begin. Some of the other swoopies gave Kate dirty looks as they took their places, which she thought deeply unfair. Fortunately, they couldn't see her blushing behind her visor. It would have hurt the tough girl image she'd worked to build with these people. A female fox morph in a skimpy outfit raised a flag at the end of the line. The whine of drive turbines increased as the racers spooled up their engines for maximum acceleration. Kate looked at the track ahead, a long, sparsely lit tunnel leading into the heart of Ballantine Tower. She gripped the handlebars, her pulse quickening in anticipation. Now! The flag came down, bright and flashing in the black lights. Kate released the brakes and rocked both her foot pedals forward, all the way to the stops. The swoop rocketed forward like the lords of hell were coming half a meter behind it. Some of the other racers kept pace with her. Most lagged behind. Kate and Callie had worked together on her swoop for the last year, optimizing it for the crucial traits of acceleration and maneuverability. She couldn't match a lot of the other racers on an open, flat stretch, but in the tight, twisting corridors of the street races, being nimble usually won out over being fast. The path narrowed quickly beyond the entrance, and the swoops that had been slower off the mark crowded in behind Kate and the other leaders. Tunnels whipped past at breakneck speeds, punctuated by flashes of yellow and black from the construction equipment, and bright orange from the barricades that kept the bystanders away. Inside Kate's helmet, her head-up display traced the outline of the course in the upper right corner of her visor. Glowing green arrows superimposed themselves on the road ahead, telling her which turns to take to follow the course. She shot through a few turns and out onto a surface road that ran north from Ballantine Tower towards city center. The road was closed for resurfacing, but that was only a hindrance to the trucks that carried freight and garbage around at street level. The swoops zipped along at one to three meters above the road's surface, unimpeded by the gaps in the concrete below. Several of the trailing swoops tried to jump ahead while Kate was out in the open, using the air above her as a passing lane. She pegged the thrust pedals again and strained to stay out in front, swerving around the cement mixers and steamrollers parked in the middle of the road. Two other swoops slipped past her before she ducked into the next tunnel. The rest were forced to fall back and return to ground level before they went off the track or crashed into the side of the building. Halfway through the next tower, Kate went around a curve and entered a stretch of tunnel where the lights were completely out. The sudden blackness took her by surprise, and the swoop's headlights only gave her about twenty meters of useful visibility, not nearly enough for how fast she was going. She gestured with two fingers and released a modest effort of will, and a blue-white ball of light the size of her head appeared about twenty meters in front of her. She fixed the light to that relative position, letting it float along with her as she flew. The mage light saved her life. It flew near an opening in the side of the tunnel, where the bricks and concrete had crumbled away, 
and suddenly there was a ripple of motion as a creature the size of a tiger sprang from the hole and pounced on the light, claws and mandibles snapping. It flew through the empty air and landed, puzzled and disoriented, in the middle of the tunnel. Kate didn't get a good look at it and didn't want to stick around to study it further, but it gave equal impressions of a lizard, a beetle, and a jungle cat. She gave it a wide berth and flashed past it at 120 kph before it regained its bearings. The entire thing had happened in less than three seconds, and Kate's adrenaline surged belatedly as her subconscious caught up with the understanding that she had very nearly died. She thumbed the radio control by her right handlebar and spoke into the microphone in her helmet. Watch out, boys and girls. There's a big nasty waiting at marker 237. Steer clear if you don't want to be lunch. She flipped over to the police band. Dispatch 942. Please notify the Lightbringers that there's a hunter in the tunnels under Selznick Tower. The road's closed now, but it's probably going to go after the construction crews if they don't catch it. Over. The radio crackled. 942, dispatch copies on Hunter Report 2223. We'll tell the Lightbringers. How big is it? Over. About two and a half meters, maybe five or six hundred kilos? I didn't get a good look at it. Definitely an ambush predator. Over. Copy, 942. Stay safe down there, Lieutenant. Over. Gonna try. 942, over and out. She flipped back to the citizen's band used by the racers. Several of the trailing swoops dropped out of the race rather than go down the tunnel where a known predator was waiting. Kate put the matter out of her mind and focused on the more immediate hazards coming up in front of her, like the pile of rebar mesh that was stacked in the middle of the tunnel for use by the construction crews. She wondered if the race organizers had deliberately rearranged it that way to make the course more challenging, or if the workers had piled it up for some reason of their own. Out of the tunnel and into the flats again, the remaining racers sped toward Halvard Tower and the halfway point in the course. Kate was in fifth or sixth place, she wasn't quite sure, but that didn't really matter for her purposes. She entered the tower, went around the first turn, and watched for the second cross tunnel on the right. The turn blocked her from the view of the riders behind her, and she slipped unseen over the barricade and into the darkness of the tunnel beyond. Callie was waiting for her, her own swoop standing at the ready. Kate made a few simple gestures, and suddenly Callie's hot pink racing suit and Kate's black and orange one seemed to have swapped places. Callie was a few centimeters shorter than Kate, no help for that, but the difference wouldn't be noticeable on the track. Callie wrapped her helmet briefly against Kate's in a friendly headbutt, gave her a thumbs up, and hopped onto Kate's swoop. Kate tossed Callie her cell phone, in case Halloway's men tried to track her that way, and Callie stuck it in her pocket. She crept up to the entrance to the cross tunnel with the headlight off, waited for an opening, then pulled back out onto the course and gunned the engine. She'd have a hard time making up enough time to win anything on this race, but she hadn't paid the entry fee either, so Kate didn't feel too guilty about it. Hopping onto Callie's swoop, she headed out of the tower and toward the upper levels of the city. The hedonist temple didn't look much like a house of worship from the outside. Built into the side of a tower in the upper middle class third skyway level, it featured broad terraced gardens, topiary bushes, and fountains spreading out into the open air plaza between the tower and its neighbors. 
The front of the temple itself had long windows of tinted glass, set in frames of dark, polished wood, above wooden doors with brass handles shaped like the bodies of conjoined lovers. It looked more like an upscale resort and spa than a church, and there was more than a little truth in that. As instructed, Kate entered the tower and went to the service entrance at the back of the temple. On this side, the walls were plain concrete, with a brass nameplate by the door. She dispelled the glamours disguising her appearance, knocked four times, then waited. Half a minute later, the door opened to reveal a handsome, well-built man of indeterminate age. He had brick-red skin, yellow eyes, a long, prehensile tail, and a pair of curling ram's horns. He wore no clothes at all, and with his sculpted chest and abs, not to mention the impressive-looking shaft between his legs, Kate was reluctantly forced to admit that no clothing on earth would improve the view. Detective Katane, the man asked, all business. Kate swallowed hard, feeling a flush of both embarrassment and arousal. She lived in an apartment complex with a couple of incubi, saw them every day. She had thought herself jaded to their charms by now, largely unaffected. She realized the truth now. Miss Fallon's men just weren't giving it their best effort. Not even close. Um, yes, I'm Detective Katane, she managed at last. And, uh, you are? The incubus smiled blandly. Call me John. He opened the door a bit wider. Please come in. My sister is waiting for you. Kate frowned as she entered. A puzzle. That was good. It would help get her mind off of... other things. Your sister? But... I thought Misty was an only child. She is Count Halloway's only child, yes, John said, but she is still my sister. Ah. That made sense, she realized. Incubi and Succubi always had one mortal parent and one fiendish one, which was the whole reason they had mortal souls and the conscience that went with them. Kate wondered when Misty's mother had her tryst with an incubus and whether she realized it at the time, or found out when John reached puberty and went through his metamorphosis into a Daedra. A very, very good-looking Daedra. Damn it, focus, Kate. Where can I find her? she asked, looking around. She appeared to be in some kind of dressing room, with a lot of narrow closets, two long benches, and a couple of clothes hampers. I'll bring you to her, John said, but I'm afraid I must ask for your weapons first. Kate reached down to her boot and pulled out the Arthana. It's only a ritual knife, she said, handing it over. John smiled humorlessly, then pricked his thumb on the tip. The wound bled a little before closing of its own volition. And yet so very effective in an emergency, he said dryly. Your gun as well, please. Kate spread her arms and gestured at the skin-tight racing suit. Does it look like I can fit my gun into this thing? The incubus chuckled. It was a rich, throaty sound that made Kate's nipples stand up and sent tingles of arousal straight down to her groin. Are you inviting me to strip-search you, detective? I'm sure I can make the experience worth your while. Kate had thought her face couldn't get any hotter. She was wrong. I... No. No, I don't give consent. There, I said it. His kind have rules. He can't feed on me if I refuse consent. He gave her a knowing smile. Are you sure? It's been a long time since you've had a lover, detective. I can tell.
He leaned in close and whispered in her ear, and none of them could do the things I would do for you. The feel of his breath on her face sent another spasm of need through her body. Damn it, I never should have walked in here alone. I... thank you, but no. She swallowed, then blurted, Not today, anyway. The Daedra's smile broadened. You idiot, Kate told herself. You just gave him permission to keep screwing with you. Not that that sounds like a bad idea. Shit, I really need to get laid. Very well, John said. But I can smell the gun oil on you, detective. Either take out the gun yourself, or let me go looking for it. Kate's hormones shouted at her that option number two sounded like a really good idea. Stupid hormones. She reached back to the hidden pocket under the foam wedge and pulled out her holdout pistol. She handed it over with a sigh of resignation. Thank you, detective. John put the gun and the dagger inside one of the closets. Right this way. He led her through the door on the far side of the dressing room, down a long hallway and into a side corridor. This part of the temple looked like a dormitory, with numbered rooms at regular intervals, interrupted by the occasional bathroom or utility closet. John stopped at a door midway down the hall and knocked twice. Sis, he called. The detective is here. Thank you, a familiar voice called back. Send her in, please. John put his hand on the doorknob and muttered something in a language Kate didn't know. The door clicked open, revealing the darkened bedroom beyond. The incubus gestured elaborately toward the open door. Nice lock, Kate said under her breath. Will I be able to get out again on my own? John gave her a look of mild surprise. But of course, detective. We did say that your safe passage was guaranteed. Kate looked at him closely for a long moment, but the Daedra's amber eyes betrayed nothing. Well, you're not going to get anything done standing out here. She took a deep breath, nodded, and walked in. The room had two beds, a nightstand between them, and a long dresser with a television on it, just visible by the crack of light coming from under the door. Any other details were obscured by the dimness of the room. There was a floral scent on the air, one that Kate now recognized as a nocturna's lily. There was another scent as well, something rich and musky that wasn't quite like anything she'd ever smelled before. The shadowy outline of a person sat on the far bed, well away from the door in the scant illumination it offered. Please come in, detective, said the voice of Lady Mysteria Halloway. Have a seat. Sure, Kate said, cautiously. She stepped carefully over to the nearer bed and sat down facing the other woman. Even from this distance, she could barely see anything. Is that some kind of darkness spell? There was definitely magic of some kind at work in the temple, but she wasn't sure she wanted to take too close a look at it. It might open her up to influences she ought to avoid. What's with the theatrics? Kate asked, hearing her annoyance start to creep into her voice. You wanted to talk. I'm here. And I should point out, I could summon a light and end this little game right now. So why haven't you? Dry amusement in the voice. Kate sighed. Because I figure you've got your reasons, and I'm waiting to hear you out. And nobody likes a cop shining a light in their face. A snort of laughter. Tell me about it. 
The figure leaned back and cocked its head, as if considering her. You're a weird choice for my father to send to hunt me down. Most of his men are cold-hearted bastards. Field operatives for the ministry don't get picked for their congeniality, Kate said. Why are you hiding from him anyway? The figure fell silent for a long moment. Something happened to us out there, she said at last, her voice barely above a whisper. At the rift? Kate asked. Yeah. I don't know what happened exactly. There was this big flash and I passed out. Woke up on a Kapler transport carrying us back to Metamore. Kate shook her head. Why were you even there? Didn't you know how dangerous it is? I'd heard. I wasn't all that worried. She shrugged. I mean, hey, lots of stuff is dangerous and people still do it, right? Haven't you ever done something just for the thrill of it? Kate opened her mouth, then closed it again. Given where she'd just been, she didn't have much room to talk about doing stupid, risky things. What happened to Bernard Travers? she asked instead. The same thing that happened to all of us, the figure said. Flash of light woke up on the transport home. But he was a lot older than the rest of us, and not all that healthy. It affected all of us in different ways. I guess his body just couldn't handle it. She sounded sad about that. If you went down in a military restricted zone, why didn't Count Halloway find out about what happened? Zeke paid off the security guys to let us get in. Baron Kapler paid off more of them to get us out and keep it quiet. He yelled at Zeke, told us we had to disappear for a while, until he could get things straightened out. Kate leaned forward. Did he say why? Was somebody putting pressure on him? The figure cocked its head the other way. I... I don't know. If they were, he didn't tell us. I figured what happened to us after was reason enough. Which was? In answer, the woman leaned toward the lamp on the bedside table and flipped it on. Kate blinked and rubbed her eyes in the sudden light, but when her eyes adjusted, she rubbed her eyes again. The woman sitting in front of her was, in the broadest sense, humanoid. Two arms, two legs, head and torso. Her body still had the unmistakable hourglass curves of an attractive female, and long, wavy black hair tumbled down to the woman's shoulders. Apart from that, Kate was not sure whether she was reminded most of a cat, a dragon, or a bighorn sheep. Large amber eyes with oval pupils gazed at her above a broad nose that blended into an angular muzzle. Two long, ridged horns grew out from her forehead and curved back in quarter circles over large and sharply pointed ears. Her skin, which had already had a reddish tone from her previous magical enhancements, was now a vivid terracotta. It glistened in the light of the lamp, and looking closer, Kate saw that it was covered with tiny, glistening scales, like snakeskin. Her fingers ended in black talons. Her legs were digitigrade, with short femurs and ankles that came up nearly to where a human's knees would be. The toes were tipped with heavy claws that looked like they could eviscerate a man with one swiping kick. A tail, broader and thicker than John's, flicked back and forth on the bed, waving a spade-shaped tip as long as Kate's hand. The creature that had been Misty Halloway smiled, bearing canines a couple of centimeters long. As you can see, Detective, I have a problem, and I think you might be the only one who can help me.
that's the end of Chapter 7. What happened at the Rift to transform Misty Holloway? How did the Rift's power affect her friends? And what does she expect Kate to do to help them? The mystery continues next week. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, Writers aren't people, exactly. Or, if they're any good, there are a whole lot of people trying so hard to be one person. Six out of ten voices in my head agree with this sentiment. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 6,235 words this week, over the course of 9.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 656 words per hour. I wrote on six out of seven days this week, taking one night off to work on audio production. The Lost in the Least is now up to chapter 15 and over 52,000 words. This week I also started putting together the ebook for the second Metamore City story collection, which is called Divine Intervention. I wrote a new foreword for this book, which came out to around 2,600 words, I'm also including a series of drabbles in this book, which are stories exactly 100 words long. These little flash fiction pieces each focus on one of the members of the Metamore City Pantheon. I had already written a few of these several years back, and this week I added a few more. I'll be including these as little intermissions between the longer stories in the collection, which are Clean Up on Skyway 3, The Cuckoo, To Walk in Shadow, Divide by Zero, Missing Pieces, The Three Graces, and Just Coffee. I'm hoping to have the book on sale by the end of February. This episode is already long, so I'm going to hold off on feedback until next week. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then... Keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.